Hello, and welcome back to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And as usual, I'm your host, Sam Mickey. So one of the things I've been doing lately is uh, kind of remixing some of our older episodes and focusing on different topics and common themes, commonalities uh, that have emerged in some of these different discussions. After all, we have uh, well over 40 episodes at this point in our archive, and it's easy to let some of these things slip through the cracks. And uh, even if you have caught up with all of our episodes, hopefully this remix shines a new light on it and provides a new depth of understanding of some of these issues. So the issue that we're going to focus on for this episode is environmental justice and its relationship to environmental racism as well. So I have a few people to, uh, to draw on some clips including the co-founders and co-directors of Breakthrough Communities, uh, which is an organization dedicated to building multiracial leadership for sustainable communities in California and the nation. And so we have Carl Anthony and Paloma Pavel. And Carl will talk about his work with Breakthrough Communities, as well as a little bit about his book, The Earth, the City, and the Hidden Narrative of Race. And then we'll hear from Paloma Pavel, who also works with Breakthrough Communities, and she'll talk about her path into this work as well. After we hear from Carl and Paloma, I'll pass it over to Christopher Carter. And the Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter is an assistant professor and the assistant chair of the Theology and Religious Studies Department at the University of San Diego. And he'll talk about his work with the field of religion and ecology, particularly the ways that ecological spaces impact Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. So I hope that you find these clips as enlightening as I have. For now, we'll start by passing it over to Carl Anthony. Well, um, we, uh, uh, I guess I was in a, in a position of uh, working for the Ford Foundation, and uh, Dr. Bravel uh, was a director of our strategic communications agenda for the work that I was doing at Ford. And uh, we had an opportunity to um, elaborate on the grants that I was giving, uh, mostly for environmental grants for communities of color who were primarily doing other things to advance the issues of communities of color. And I saw an opportunity, and Dr. Pavel also saw the opportunity to bring the focus, uh, bring a sharper focus on the issues of sustainability in that work at the Ford Foundation. Nice. Yeah, really special, really great work. Um, and I know a lot of people in the Bay Area definitely know that it's a, it's a very you know flagship institution around here. Um, so also, you know, I want to hear a little bit more. I know that uh, the, some stories about Breakthrough Communities are in uh, your book. But I also want to hear a little bit more about it, especially for any of our uh, listeners or viewers who don't know it. It's a really wonderful book, uh, The Earth, the City and the Hidden Narrative of Race. So could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, yes, uh, actually, that that book is uh, in part uh, an autobiographical, and I, my intention was to lift up uh, a set of experiences that are not that uh, well developed within the environmental community that positions our community uh, at the African American community to go back to the origin of humanity. You know, uh, on on uh, two hundred two hundred 50,000 years ago in the Rift Valley, uh, the uh, Africans uh, came down from the trees and 
began to walk across the, the savannah. And that part of that heritage, uh, which was um, many thousands of years before we uh, got enslaved uh, by the Europeans who were coming to Africa to get a labor force, uh, we had been developing a culture, African, our ancestors were developing a culture that have ha, has a lot to do with our thinking about uh, our climate change issues today, because the emergent issues of climate is what was responsible in part, at least in some by, by some people, maybe even more than a part, uh, with the emergence of uh, the human race. I really appreciate that perspective. It's so, um, you know, different than the normal narrative you hear when people are talking about like environmentalism, they go back to like Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and John Muir. And it's this very, as if it's this very recent phenomenon. Uh, and you're saying, well, actually the, the history, right, of the human relationship to nature, we need to think about the entire evolutionary trajectory of the species. So you're really thinking about the human at the whole species level. I think that's correct. And I, I also think that our history, uh, speaking as African-Americans, our history uh, gives us a window on looking at the all of humanity's relationship to the environment and our recent history, which is five, four or 500 years old, uh, really emerged at, at a point when the Europeans were uh, really gaining a mastery of the oceans and were able to uh, translate that to their own personal advantage, but really ignoring the uh, profound experience of many uh, non-European cultures and Africans uh, were a part of that. So it's really adding a dimension to all of human history. Yes, yes, exactly. and. And, you know, sometimes I think when people get into this larger evolutionary or ecological perspective, uh, you know, thinking about the whole earth even, then they miss urban issues, specifically the city. You know, a lot of ecologically minded people are always just trying to get away from the city and they want to be in the wild. And so uh, one of the really special things about your work is uh, the way you focus on cities so much while also focusing on this larger evolutionary narrative. So for you, what's the role of the city in, uh, in human evolution or in our current historical moment? Well, you know, the, the, the primary relationship uh, between people and the city uh, grew up at the time that uh, people began to uh, develop a, a, an approach to agriculture. And the cities were an, an important uh, uh, contribution to the, that, those efforts. And I would say maybe 20,000 years ago or 15,000 years ago, uh, when many of the ancient civilizations began to emerge, uh, th th there was a great deal of, of work that was under underway within the uh, African-American community, uh, on the, the African community on those, uh, those important uh, changes that were happening in the uh, in the human relationship to the environment. And uh, the city was an important, an important part of that. And so then for the, the future of humanity uh, to have a sustainable relationship and a just relationship to the earth, we can still have cities, but obviously 
the way we're currently planning them and organizing them isn't really getting it done. Yeah, it, that's right. And and so our our historical experience is also a critique of the sort of dominant view of the cities, uh, which is not so much related to nature uh, as it is re- related to accumulation of capital and uh, the creation of human power in the in the uh, in the larger uh, universe, uh, ignoring the ecological foundation of that in uh, in our exploitation of the resources of nature. All right, big thanks to Carl Anthony. Uh, now I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Paloma Pavel to talk about her perspective on this work and the way that her life has brought her to engage these kinds of issues as well. Well, thank you, Sam. Um, let's see, I I grew up um, in a second-generation immigrant family um, from Czechoslovakia, and my grandparents did not speak English, and that uh, and were very um, knowledgeable of land-based wisdom. My grandmother was somewhat of a nature mystic um, and also healer in her own right. And uh, she also was my first deep ecology teacher in her garden, learning about how how plants grew, but also she would sort of show me the, the coils of the garlic and the swirl on the top of my head and my hair, and also talk about the Milky Way and mm-hmm. really conveyed a sense of how um, I belonged to this universe, that that we all do. And through that nature-based learning was a profound, profound teacher about kind of an early prefigurement of the universe story in my own life. And um, uh, growing up uh, actually at the border um, in Southern California, La Frontera, um, and my father was a humanitarian doctor. And we would cross the border and I would see the, the dis, the, the, the gaps between language, class, um, how I could cross and return, but my friends and kids that I was meeting and growing up with beginning at age six, um, crossing every Saturday, were uh, unable to come with me. And so in some ways that divide has, I've been bridging that, seeking to build those bridges um, and heal those divides of race and class and uh, international um, arbitrary um, walls Mm -hmm. for ever since. That's really been the nature of my work. And uh, as I began to be more aware of the these converging crises, environmental and the carrying capacity of the earth and Donello Meadows and the Club of Rome's work, uh, I reached a kind of existential crisis um, in in my early adulthood and found myself called to a um, retreat time in a Benedictine monastery in silence. And it was there really focused on the kind of ecological crisis of our time and seeing that we were on kind of a suicide mission, the sixth great extinction, as as Brian and others, Brian Swim and others have, have uh, named it for us. Um, and so at that time, I just saw that that was really 
the rededication when I came out of the contemplative structure of the monastery, I continued to hold that as a guiding principle in my life, both the contemplative roots of both Christian and earth-based spirituality um, that we were exposed there with Brother David Steindl-Rost and other guest teachers from around the world who were with us on the coast of Maine. And it led me to start um, my own um, deep ecology retreat center mm. um, also nearby and where we learned from nature. So I became a registered Maine guide and led wilderness trips into the mountains, down rivers, kayaking to islands. And with, with the reverse principle of many outdoor experiences, which is not sort of human man over nature, but actually apprenticing from living systems mm -hmm. and learning from um, the ec ecology surrounding us. So those early years were very formative and as much as any part of my formal education, I consider the learning among uh, living systems without running water or electricity for seven years um, and building a house um, and 11 buildings at our center by hand um, and hauling water and cutting wood and welcoming guests there from throughout U.S. and sometimes from other countries. Uh, those were really my spiritual teachers um, and uh, have taught me, I think what I stand in with greatest confidence is that learning about the um, cosmological cycles of our planet and how, just like in the monastery where you honor the hours of the day, um, we would be very much informed by not only the hours of the day, but the seasons and when it's below zero for 30 days at a time, <laughs> cutting with wood. Um, so I, I think that in meeting um, Thomas Berry, it was as though um, some deeply uh, deep longing of accompaniment in my own quest that had been planted in me in the seeds of my grandmother's garden uh, were, were really hatching um, and watered and nourished by this profound um, synthesis that uh, Thomas brought forward uh, and which really it was it was like a coming home, such a deep, profound coming home that uh, not only informed and continued to inform the work at our rural center, um, but also I felt called to seminary. Um, and, uh, and during that time worked on the anti-apartheid uh, campaign with Desmond Tutu and his guidance. And he became a lifelong mentor alongside Thomas. I would say that sense of kind of the spiritual contemplative geologian side and then the activist um, social and racial justice uh, side, those, those two figures um, have really informed and guided um, much of the work. And so when I met Carl um, in, uh, in the Bay Area where I was a professor, of organizational development and social transformation and 
assisted him in the uh, leadership development of his own organization. And then when he was invited to the Ford Foundation and we worked together there, and uh, I developed the peer-to-peer -peer learning and the um, uh, really worked with Carl on the strategy of, of what, how could we really bring a radical opening and listening to communities and their learning and teaching of each other, um, what might that hatch? What might that evolve? And especially having it rooted and grounded in a sense of deep time of that our human venture, which began in the Rift Valley, as far as we best understand it uh, on this planetary time, and our particular heritage of um, of uh, coming to Turtle Island and the genocide and displacement um, and transatlantic slave trade and and the river people like myself, my own heritage of coming as immigrants from um, uh, situations of, of great strife in other parts of the planet. Um, so here we are and and what can we be together? How can we be together in this new moment in 2021? All right. Thanks so much to Paloma Pavel. Uh, now I'm going to pass it off to Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter, and he'll talk to us about his work with environmental justice at the intersection of religion and ecology. Um, I come at this from multiple perspectives, but I will say the the genesis of my thinking about the environment is my grandfather, as you see picture with my son, Isaiah. Uh, my grandfather uh, was born in the 1930s in Mississippi. Um, he was a migrant farmer um, and a picker, I guess is probably the more accurate term, and just had to deal with a lot of particular kind of uh, racism um, in the midst of living, with Jim, uh, living during the era of Jim Crow. And so as a consequence, um, you know, he left the South and moved to Michigan, and that's where I was born. My mother was born and myself, and has always been committed to kind of not only sharing those stories about his experience of growing up in Mississippi and spending a lot of time in Louisiana, but also the ways in which he really loved the land and how him and his gardening, as he called it, but quite honestly, was basically like a farm in the backyard of his house in the middle of nowhere in the country, um, really made an impression on me that I hadn't really interrogated until I got older. Um, and I connect this right now with my, my son, Isaiah. Um, and so a lot of what I, I think about in terms of how my work, um, the writing that I do is really not only to speak to the legacy of my grandfather and those who came before me and the road that they laid and the path that they paid for me to be here um, and honoring their agricultural legacy, their culinary legacy, and speaking truth to the ways in which they understood the environment, how they lived within the environment, but also trying to provide and leave a footprint or framework for my son and future generations to look at uh, ecology in ways in which the contributions, I should say, to ecological thought from Black perspectives and see them as having deep and profound value that continue to shape and reshape, again, how we interact with the non and more than human world. You see on the bottom of that is uh, one of my, uh, some. It's a vegan Spanish paella. It's probably one of the best things I've ever made in my life. And I note that it's vegan because that is a big part of my ecological commitment. For me, um, my commitment to this uh, well this way of being in the world 
um, is centered on for the people. And I always say, like, I, I love animals and animals are great. But a lot of my work, again, talks about um, food and the ways in which environmental and food policies impact and harm people of color. And as such, um, this has been a big uh, moral and ethical um, way for me to uh, contribute to um, actually my kind of activism, I guess, for lack of a better term. So a little bit about my academic work. Uh, as, I, as I said, my academic work explores religion ecology through the lens of race, food, and non-human animals. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each of those areas. First, uh, my forthcoming book, uh, The Spirit of Soul Food, um, I really sought to answer the question, what should soul food look like for Black folks, given the structural racism that is embedded into the domestic and global food systems? Um, and so ultimately, I argue that in order for us, first, that all people should take food seriously, but particularly Black people and Black Christians should begin to think theologically about food and to adopt a different way of eating. I call it different food ways um, as a response to systemic racism. And so the way I argue it is that we need to consider not only what we eat, um, but how we access our food and how we might create food sovereign communities, right, to empower people to have better choices and better access um, and, and, and better health consequences in light of the food that we are um, currently eat today. For me, I argue that one of the pillars of this way of eating is called soulful eating. Soulful eating at, at its best is vegan, but even when it's not vegan per se, it interrogates the ways in which white supremacist thinking is embedded into the ways in which we think about food, food that Black people consume, specifically tying it back to the kind of racialized narratives about food that uh, emerged during uh, the enslavement of Black people. Uh, and Spirit Soul Food should be out in June of 2021. So really looking forward to that actually being published. Um, next is Prophetic Labrador. So this book actually uh, is one of the more personal things I've ever written. Um, it was about my uh, dog, Samson, when he passed away and just the way in which it transformed my thinking about the non-human world and how we relate to it and connect to it. Um, I wanted people to start thinking logic, uh, theologically about the non-human world, but particularly I wanted Black people to start thinking about this in ways. And I wanted white people who were already thinking about the more than human world to understand and interpret it and, 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 and um, have some encounter with it from the experience of a Black person. Um, and so suffice it to say for me, not only was this article personal, it really pushed me to it broaden my understanding of community, the theological notion of community. So it's um, in the book, A Feeling Animal Death, again, it's just a chapter, but it's probably the most personal thing I've ever written. This chapter right here, Blood in the Soil, um, was published a few years ago that gets at more of the ecological work that I do, right? So we talked about food, we talked about nine animals, so a little bit about the ecological work that I do. Basically in this chapter, I argue that the, the framework, the theoretical framework for how we think about and talk about environmentalism is steeped in a lot of, in the language of whiteness, right? And so much of the challenge that has uh, prevented the environmental movement from diversifying, if you will, is because not only the language, but some of the ideological foundations that uphold these ways of being the world, again, really are also tied into the ways in which uh, white supremacist structure is upheld. And so I argue and, and talk about and try to posit different ways for people of faith, particularly Christians, to rethink what it means to be human in ways that could empower 
us and, 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 and cause us to, again, broaden our perspective on what it means to be a human being and relate to and connect with and recognize our interconnectedness to uh, the non-human world. So my professional work spans the spectrum. Um, I am the chairperson or one, I guess the co-chair of the religion and ecology unit at the American Academy of Religion. I'm a board member of Farm Forward and at Creature Kind, and both of these. So Farm Forward is a nonprofit that focuses on food policy, uh, specifically as it relates to farmed animals. And Creature Kind is a Christian organization that uh, is encouraging a vegan and vegetarian kind of lifestyle from a theological perspective. Um, lastly, I am one of the co-founders of Racial Resilience. And Racial Resilience is an anti-racism training program that uses the combined insights of compa- uh, contemplative practices and critical race theories. Um, and I'm really excited about that work. And um, as you might suspect, given the summer we've had in 2020, I have been quite uh, busy and active in that area of anti-racism training as well. So if you're interested in a little bit more about my work or contacting me, you can find out more of my work at drchristophercarter.com. Or if you weren't interested in racial resilience, you can find out information on that on racialresilience.com. Um, other than that, thank you so much for spending a few minutes learning a bit about me. Uh, I hope if you're interested in my work, you'll reach out to me so I can learn a little bit about you. Thank you and have a great day. All right. Thanks so much to Christopher Carter, to Paloma Pavel, to Carl Anthony. Uh, I really appreciate their perspective on these things and hope that you did too. If you haven't seen their full episodes, there'll be some links provided to help you navigate there. If you have seen their episodes, I hope you enjoyed the remix uh, showing the kind of continuities there are between their thought. All right, so I'll leave it there for now. We'll be back next week with some more content for you. In the meantime, take care and be well.